Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week, I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Take The Dress. Most people remember it as an optical illusion that went viral, asking everyone on the planet, is this dress blue and black or white and gold? Turns out, that story was way bigger than just an optical illusion. It's a cautionary tale about the decline of clickbait sites, the rise of algorithms and internet polarization, and the end of fun on the internet. Seriously, and that's just one story. We're giving every character their 16th minute. So listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. And we host Stages Podcast. Binge close to 100 episodes. Hear the inside stories from backstage and behind the scenes as we go beyond the resume and into the heart of creativity and what it really takes to be in the business of show business. Don't miss our chats with this season's Tony nominees. If you love theater and entertainment, you are going to love Stages Podcast. Subscribe to Stages Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and visit us at stagespodcast.net. This podcast should not be used as a substitute for medical or mental health advice. Individuals are advised to seek independent medical advice, counseling, and or therapy from a healthcare professional with respect to any medical condition, mental health issue, or health inquiry, including matters discussed on this podcast. This episode discusses abuse, which may be triggering to some people. The views and opinions expressed are solely those of the podcast author or individuals participating in the podcast and do not represent the opinions of Red Table Talk Productions, iHeartMedia, or their employees. You know, I'm listening to him and he's saying, I have, I found you finally. I have been looking everywhere for you all around the world and I finally found you. And I'm going to tell the other woman that I found you, and she's going to be so happy for me. Again, red flags were not going off, which is a sign of where I was emotionally and who was driving the bus (laughs) in my psyche. Sometimes people have a life that for a while seems all figured out. A long marriage, children, and then over time, the usual stuff may come up in a marriage. Financial and employment woes, stress, And with more time, what a person thinks is working well finally shows its cracks. Kirsten Hathcock's story is a unique journey through reinventing herself and starting a business in which she had no background, being on the cusp of a major deal and then losing it, 
and realizing some things about her childhood that were transformative. Into the middle of this storm came something that swept her away and changed her life forever. Kirsten's story had numerous ups and downs that we're not even be able to begin to get into here and that are spelled out in her book, Little Voices. But today, we're gonna talk about her marriage and what happened, a reminder that toxic relationships can come up when we least expect them. Kirsten, welcome. It is so nice to have you here on Navigating Narcissism. I'm very, very happy to see you here, to have the opportunity to talk as I read your book. So your book was really, I mean, again, to anyone listening, if you're looking for a book with twists and turns, this (laughs) is your book. It's called Little Voices, and you can get more information on that, obviously, in the show notes. Again, so many twists and turns, and because it's so complicated, I'd say to everyone, if you want to read the whole story, go read the book. You need to get her book. (laughs) We're going to take on a piece of it that's most relevant to the story. Let's start with you, your family, your marriage. Tell us about you and your relationship with your husband, Scott, in those early days. So I am, I just turned 49, so I'm outing my age. I grew up in Ohio. My dad's a football coach. My mom's a teacher. I grew up in a very grounded family and just, you know, a grounded environment, very Ohio. And I had pretty much this idyllic childhood, or so I thought. Went off to college, ended up actually meeting my husband after college. We met in a bar, which is really classy, right? (laughs) In Charlotte, North Carolina. And we hit it off and ended up getting engaged after four months. Mm -hmm. I believe I was 23 when we got married. He was 25. We were what I would definitely feel was happily married for 18 years. And at that 18-year mark, several things happened. One, I started to recover memories of childhood sexual abuse that I endured as a kid. And I didn't even necessarily believe that that was a thing that I could recover. But there was a lot of proof that led me to understand that this indeed happened to me when I was between the ages of three and six. Mm -hmm. So that 18-year mark in our marriage and then that piece of information coming to a head, it changed things. Mm -hmm. It changed things Mm -hmm. for me. And I think, you know, I've always been a people pleaser. I've always been, I think it's pretty common for childhood abuse Mm -hmm. survivors to please Mm -hmm. because we're programmed to do that. Mm -hmm. And I think it was the first time in my life where I really kind of sat down and went, you know what? This isn't all roses. Mm -hmm. I Mm -hmm. don't feel right about everything. And that was in 2014, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. was our 18 year Mm -hmm. anniversary. So happy 18 years. Yeah. Yeah, happy 18 years. And then you were having experiences within yourself and things inside you were changing. How was that unfolding in the marriage? Because it sounds like Mm -hmm. that was then leading to some more difficult times in your marriage. Absolutely. Like I said, I was a pleaser. So for most of our marriage, Scott, who was a wonderful man, absolutely adore him. But, you know, he would say, hey, let's eat outside. And I would not think, do I want to eat outside? I would just say, sure, absolutely. That was my pat answer for everything. So at that point, I think what what was most interesting is I'm dealing with this, you know, memory of childhood sexual abuse and kind of dealing with healing and going to therapy and seeing, you know, psychologists. And, and different therapists, but I'm also I'm also kind of not feeling like I'm myself anymore mm-hmm. because when you go into that and you're you're kind of looking back and saying, well, who am I really? I, I didn't even remember that. Like, what what about my life 
am I also still now missing? Mm-hmm. And there, it was interesting because I, I noticed that I started to get kind of irritated with my husband. Things just didn't feel right anymore. I was tired of being the pleaser. I was tired of feeling like I was carrying the weight of the relationship. We had been through a lot of layoffs, a lot of financial ups and downs. Mm-hmm. And because I'm a doer, a fixer, I would just jump right in and try and fix mm-hmm. to the point where I even built a furniture company out oh. of our garage <laughs> that ended up on Shark Tank. So yeah, it, you know that's the level at which I fix things. So you started that furniture business. Mm-hmm. Was that in response to an actual financial need within your family? Yes, it was. Absolutely. So we had moved around a lot because you know, my husband and I were both in the entertainment mm-hmm. side, but we were on the advertising side and the marketing side. Mm-hmm. And in order to move up, you typically had to move to another city. But we're also mm-hmm. talking about 2008, yeah. 2004, mm-hmm. rough times. Yeah. While it was not Scott's fault that we went through so many layoffs on his side, I was still the one sort of picking things up on my end mm-hmm. to say, okay, we need to pay the gas bill. How can I figure out how to do this? Mm-hmm. And I I had left my job to stay home with the kids and I was doing marketing work. I was always a work from home mom, mm-hmm. but I had to step it up in a bigger way. So you can see how much of a fixer I was throughout. Can I ask you, did you mm-hmm. have a background in carpentry? What did that look like? I was building it. And no, I do not have a background in carpentry oh. or design. I didn't even have any money to do this, but I had my intuition. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, I was very much in tune with that quiet little voice inside of me. And everyone else around me said, you're crazy. <laughs> like, why do you want to build? <laughs> why do you think you can build kids' furniture? Well, I'm going to try. And that's exactly what I did. And I did not expect it to take off the way that it did. I needed to bring in more income than what I was actually bringing in at the time while staying home with the kids. And that was the answer for me was to build furniture in our garage. I don't want to go off on a tangent here. (laughs) I I have to tell you, I had to listeners, I had sort of the glimpse in because I've already read her book to read more about Mm -hmm. this. But it is such an interesting part of your story, right? Because it would be, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not even like it was like cupcakes out of your kitchen, which most of us can follow (laughs) our recipe. This was furniture, right? And I I mean, so this concept of being a fixer, it's not lost on Mm -hmm. me that in some ways knowing how to use tools is a form of fixing too. But that you would take on something, let's face it, Kirsten, there's something almost masculinized about furniture building. We don't think of women as doing it, though they're incredibly skilled, you know, woodworkers out there of all genders, but it's not our Mm -hmm. sort of our our kind of stereotypical vision of it. And here you were going into your garage, not only, mm-hmm. this is not like you were making furniture for the house to save money. You were making it that it was good enough to sell. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then it went to the next level, which I think would be, I'm going to say quirky, but that's not meant to minimize it because it's just really, <laughs> to me, it's like, what? It you did what with your furniture? <laughs> so the furniture started selling in LA. Somebody must have seen right? a prototype of it and said, I've seen pictures of it. I get why people wanted to buy it. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. But still, a lot of people make things in their garage, and even when they are good, they don't sell them. They don't sell them, right? right. Exactly. But then you took it to this whole new level, and can you sort mm-hmm. of let people know what that is and how that all happened? Because that was like a big thing. It was a big thing, yes. Um, so I spent pretty much every day covered in sawdust, in and out of the garage, all day long, shuttling kids back and forth to school. And I did that for about three years Mm -hmm. prior to going on Shark Tank. And it was during that time period where, you know, I built the first one and it actually resembled my grandmother's old split-top record player. And so all of the sudden, 
bloggers out of New York and different design areas of the world started saying, hey, there's a mom in a garage in Burbank, (laughs) California, (laughs) and she's making these things. And one of them even ended up in an international design book. So, you know, I felt like there was some validation, yes, in the design aspect of, you know, what I was doing. You know, I I think I was in such a fight or flight state Mm -hmm. because I was in fear when I was doing it. Yeah. So I just had to keep going mm-hmm. and keep growing it. So I went on Shark Tank in 2010 is when I actually filmed and it aired in 2011. And I ended up with two offers. And the second offer with Robert, actually, he was the second offer. Uh, Mr. Wonderful, if you ever watched the mm-hmm. show, he's the one who offered mm-hmm. first. And then Robert Hershevec offered after him and his offer was better. So I took it. Mm-hmm. I ended up not getting that deal. Mm. After we stopped filming, he basically said, I think you're still a little bit too small. Why don't you come back in a year or so? Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was devastating mm-hmm. because yeah. we were really counting on that. We were at a point where Scott had lost his job again and we needed to make that happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I cried, honestly. Mm-hmm. Sat down and I cried in my kitchen. And then I just thought, you know what? I can do this. Yeah. So I think, you know, growing up in the Midwest and having the parents I have who were just amazing people, they taught me to work hard. They taught me to just keep going. And, you know, believe in myself. And I did believe in myself, Mm -hmm. especially at that point. So about a year later, I ended up getting an actual deal. An angel investor came to me because he watched the episode on Hulu and he said, did that deal go through? And I told him it didn't. And he offered more money and I gave away less equity. So I have a really, yeah, I have a great ending to that story. Okay, (laughs) so a lot of things were happening in your marriage. I want to go back and I'm going to switch gears again. A lot of things are happening in your marriage. 18 years, kids, but job loss on and off, which was the story of a lot of folks at that time too. It was a tough time and it still is. And that's a strain on a marriage. You having your own sort of psychological revelations in yourself Mm -hmm. and you're also building this business, which is putting you in a position of going from the parent who is at home caring for kids to Mm -hmm. becoming a primary breadwinner. Right. That's a lot of transitions. It is. Okay. It's a lot. Yeah. When I started to actually go into the industry, that's when things got really interesting. I was being courted by a company called Stanley Furniture. Mm -hmm. And they said, you know what? We love what you're doing. And we want to hire you on as a spokesperson. And we'd like to also take on your line and we'll expand it into, you know, all kinds of different items Mm -hmm. for kids. So they offered me a job. They offered me the spokesperson job. And then I was about to sign the licensing deal, which we were projecting $5 million in sales mm-hmm. at that point, right? So, you know, I really am feeling like, yeah. oh my gosh, finally, yay. You know, now we're going we're gonna to get to this point. And I was supposed to fly down to High Point, North Carolina, which is where all of the big trade show action goes on in the furniture industry. Mm-hmm. So I fly in and the plane stops and I turn my phone on and it's just ding, 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 ding. Mm. And I'm seeing multiple messages from Scott. And so naturally, I got worried, thinking yeah, maybe you know something had happened with our kids or whatnot. And when I finally got him, he said, did you look at the press release that just came out? No. <laughs> no, I'm here. I'm, you know, I'm working for Stanley. I'm actually going to be meeting with HGTV and all of these different people while I'm here at this trade show. He said, Kirst, I'm so sorry they shut down. They shut down their youth what? division. Mm-hmm. So I literally get off the plane and I lose my job. I lose my licensing deal. My husband had already lost his job at that point and he had taken a job, one of the only jobs that we could get in Flagstaff, Arizona at that time. You know, he was making a quarter of what 
he had made before. Wow. So it wasn't just, oh my gosh, I can't believe this failed. Now I have to go find something else. It was, I don't know how we're going to eat next month. Oh my goodness. And then, you know, you couple that with everything that was already kind of, you know, going on within the marriage and me sort of realizing there was a lot of codependency. I felt like I was always carrying the world and I end up at High Point and friends gathered around me. And one of those friends happened to be this very charismatic man by the name of Tony. And Tony was a good friend of two of my friends. Mm. And he said, you know what, Kirsten, I'm going to help you. I think what you are doing is amazing. He just propped me up and that's what I needed. So in that moment, you said that your friends surrounded you. Mm -hmm. These were friends like you knew, like from the furniture industry. Yes. So when you were traveling to High Point, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you had already been working with Stanley. Like they had been producing your furniture. They'd Mm -hmm. had a children's furniture division. Mm -hmm. So that was, you were the spokesperson. Like that was already happening. Yes. And then you take this flight, Mm -hmm. this press release comes out coincidentally, while you're on the flight, you get off the plane having already worked with Stan. So Stanley chooses not to tell you this before putting out a press release. Yes, because they said that they're publicly traded, so they couldn't give away that information to me. I was hired. I had a salary position as a spokesperson. The only thing that they wanted me to do with regards to the licensing deal was to get there and then sign the deal. And I think it had taken eight months to get this thing where I was about to sign it. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I lost that. You know, I'm going to just say something on the side because it's interesting. I never even thought about this in your story, but when you're me, you see the narcissistic stuff everywhere. Mm -hmm. There's something very betrayally about, you know, for eight months you were strung along. Mm -hmm. They Mm -hmm. knew this was happening. Eight months ago, you don't just close a division of a publicly traded company overnight. Right. Maybe they knew three months before. We don't know, but this was not something they learned in 24 hours. And they strung you along, mm-hmm. and you were going there ostensibly to sign something. They knew that, mm-hmm. and nothing was said. You know, it's interesting right. just from a straight, if you will, business, workplace, corporate narcissistic piece, mm-hmm. it has that flair as though it was only their interest. And here is, and this is why I think so many people get harmed by the kind of unempathic business policies that are out there. Yes. That what might seem like nothing to them, eh, we're closing a division, eh, there won't be the licensing deal, mm-hmm. is a family's financial future, is a family's mm-hmm. dinner on the table. Mm-hmm. That right there to me is interesting how this lack of empathy sneaks up in all these different parts of our lives and we don't even frame it as such. So you now get to high point. Mm -hmm. You're devastated. Absolutely. You're in an absolutely vulnerable position. Mm -hmm. You see friends. That's comforting. And this person, Tony, comes in who is in this vulnerable moment saying, we can figure this out. We can fix Mm -hmm. this. Mm -hmm. That Mm -hmm. must have felt very empowering, emboldening, and comforting at exactly that point in your life to hear that. Yeah, it was. It was just what I needed. And I had met him prior. You know, when I was starting to get to know him, it was it was all virtual. I knew these two women that were friends of mine and I really liked them a lot. I was, you know, had gotten to know them over the last six months. One of them worked with me at Stanley. And they said, oh, you're going to love this guy. 
He's great. We have to introduce mm. you when you come down to High Point. So I had actually already met him because we connected on Facebook and and he loved my designs and he wanted to actually partner with me, maybe do another kid's line. So he absolutely swooped in and said all the right things. Mm-hmm. And in a moment where I'm just crumbling, I really felt like everything was pulled out, you know, from beneath me. So what happened then? So I'm at High Point. I'm supposed to be there for five days. I'm at High Point. I'm shocked because I'm going about my business. I'm meeting with other people. I knew my job was to stay there and just try and get another deal and try and get another job. Mm -hmm. I could have gone back home, which was offered to me. And I said, no, I have no choice. I need to be here. So I was taking meetings. I was running around. In between, Tony and my other two girlfriends were, you know, Hey, let's let's have a drink tonight. I know you probably, you know, you could use it. Let's have dinner. Tony was asking me to have dinner with him as well on his own. Mm-hmm. And, and what was interesting about that is I recognized it immediately as feeling inappropriate. I had had multiple dinners mm. and business lunches with a lot of executives over the years. That was nothing new. But there was something about the way he asked to have dinner with me. So I actually said no. I said I would Mm -hmm. meet him, you know, over in the showroom. And then the next night, the group of us, all of us, were going out for dinner. He surprised me, in addition to being very flattering and in trying to be like, hey, I'll help you however I can. He also confessed to me that he had a crush on me. Mm. But it wasn't... It wasn't in those terms. He literally said, I just think you were the most precious soul. And I love all the volunteer work you do on the side. I love everything about you. Literally said, I'm going to be over here loving you from the side. And I know that Mm. this might, you know, if this is uncomfortable, I will not go to dinner with the group. And again, pleaser Kirsten. Oh, no, it's not uncomfortable at all. No, 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 not at all. Not at all. Also... That felt good. It was the antithesis of what I was dealing with, you know, in my real life. So yeah. it was interesting because he came on full court press. There were a lot of back and forth. He was texting me, you look beautiful. I wish I could hold your hand. Things that you don't say in a normal relationship, a normal friendship. But I was not in my right mind. I w- it was a perfect mm-hmm. storm of all of the stuff that I had dealt with in childhood and then all of the things that had been bubbling up in Mm -hmm. the marriage coming together at one point. And I just fell head over heels in love with him, head over heels. What's so interesting about what you're saying about Tony is that charming, charismatic, your Mm -hmm. friends knew him. Mm -hmm. Did he know you were married? Mm -hmm. Yeah. He said, listen, I know I have no shot. I have no shot. Mm -hmm. So he knows you're married. He does this combination of asking you to dinner. You're beautiful. I have a crush on you, but I understand if you don't want me Mm -hmm. to come. Mm -hmm. So that mishmash is confusing. Mm -hmm. But like you said, you're also acknowledging this was a vulnerable, confusing time for you. Right. Unpack that for us. You fell head over heels in love. Can you sort of lay that out in terms Mm -hmm. of the time frame over which that happened, what that looked like? Where did it all happen so we can understand that? Sure. So it happened faster than anything should happen. Mm -hmm. I will say that. And I know that's a marker for narcissistic abuse. Things happen very, very quickly. It happened over a literally one week time period. Mm. And I think I had, it was almost like a break, you know, almost a mental break that I had where I was so tired of always trying to fix everything for everyone. And it was really the first time in my life where I just said, you know what? I don't care. 
this feels mm-hmm. good. And I, th- I mean, I was head to toe chills when I met him. We felt like we'd known each other forever. He's using soulmate language. And it, mm-hmm. it, it didn't take much, you know, because the minute he looks at me and he says, are you happy? And nobody had ever really asked me that. And what could I say as I'm feeling drawn to him? Well, no, <laughs> I'm actually not happy in my marriage right now or in my life. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up leaving uh, about seven days later from that market and I kept pushing my flight back. So then my husband, of course, is saying, are you okay? Is everything okay? And at one point, he's highly intuitive as well. And at one point he said, are you having an affair? Mm-hmm. And I felt horrible, absolutely horrible. Don't want to hurt him. Love him to pieces. Mm -hmm. No. And I thought, I'll deal with it when I get back. Right now, I just want to live in the high of this. It feels like a Mm -hmm. drug. But I felt like I was a teenager almost. It was really interesting. I was, you know, 16 and I was out with a rebel. And that's that's where I was, you know, in my mind, in my body. You know, he's crying as we're leaving, leaving each other. And he was heading back home and I'm in tears. And, you know, am I ever going to see him again? And, oh my God, how do I, how, I can't let that feeling go. How am I going to do this? So I got back on that plane and I flew home. And for the first week, I just tried to act like nothing happened. And he was just a business acquaintance, if I mentioned his name. But that's also not who I am. I have always been very transparent when I feel like I need to be, you know? Like, I I did not want to do this to Scott. So I said finally to him, can we talk? I want out. I'm, I'm done. And you're right, I did have an affair. So within two weeks of knowing Tony, I fell head over heels and then left, basically said to my husband, I want out. My session with Kirsten will continue after this break. Okay, I want to understand the time frame here. Okay. Fly to High Point to trade show, mm-hmm. land, mm-hmm. get the terrible news, meet with friends, meet Tony. Mm-hmm. And in this next week, it goes from him telling you, you're beautiful, join me for dinner. You even say no. Mm-hmm. But then you finally do spend more time with him. And in a one-week period, this infatuation developed for you. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. And you fell in love. Mm-hmm. And then you push off your flight, you go back to home. You go back Mm -hmm. to Flagstaff Mm -hmm. and you must have stayed in touch with Tony that whole week, right? Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. That whole week. But you know, now that I, you know, was back in Flagstaff, I'm dealing with real life stuff again. The fact that I had lost my job, you know, what are we going to do? So I was in that fix it mode again, yet I was also talking to him and texting him quite a bit. And he was, you know, he was asking like, when are you going to talk to him? When are you going to tell him? He was telling me that, you know, he and his wife, They would be divorced, but they couldn't afford it. So they're just living. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure... It kills you. 
Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> what? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Take The Dress. Most people remember it as an optical illusion that went viral, asking everyone on the internet, is this dress blue and black or white and gold? But there's way more to this story than that. The dress went viral in early 2015, marking one of the last months that the internet could still be fun. It was just before Trump declared his candidacy for president and polarized and already polarized internet. It was just shy of people deciding what went viral instead of algorithms. And it was just shy of celebrities realizing that they should never, ever tweet. It's more than a character of the day. It's an entire moment in time bottled in a little, well, either blue and black or white and gold package. I'm not relitigating it again. You cannot make it. And that's just one story. We've got a million. So listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because, God, I can't stay where I am like I am where it is. This isn't going to work. I, I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily to die for is available now listen for free on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts together for the kids you know he was talking about another woman that he had even fallen in love with who was overseas and it's crazy to me that none of that was a red flag <laughs> at the moment <laughs> You know, I'm listening to him and he's saying, I found you finally. I have been looking everywhere for you. 
all around the world, and I finally found you. And I'm going to tell the other woman that I found you, and she's going to be so happy for me. Again, no, like red flags were not going off, which is a sign of where I was emotionally and who was driving the bus (laughs) in my psyche. Right, because these were beyond red flags. This is like somebody poured 10 gallons of red paint Yes. Like, yes. The, the flags have marched a long time ago. <laughs> yes, exactly. So may I ask, mm-hmm. how did your husband react? He was so upset, obviously, mm-hmm. you know, so upset, so surprised. From the outside for 18 years, people would say, you guys are such a great couple. Gosh, you're just the mm-hmm. perfect couple. I wish we could be like you. But really what was happening behind the scenes is, you know, I was pleasing all the time and I was feeling really suffocated because Scott just felt like his world was complete if it was just me. Mm-hmm. So not only mm-hmm. am I, you know, fixing things on all fronts and in the garage and fixing financials, but I'm also his everything. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. what was interesting about it when I came back, the feeling I had, I didn't want to lose the feeling I had with Tony, but mm-hmm. I also had this feeling of just please let me go. Please let me go. Mm-hmm. Just just let me go. Like I needed to just run. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... You tell Scott you're feeling done. And what may I ask just what happened sure. at that point? Did you move out? Did you? No, we couldn't afford to. And oh. I think he was just kind of like, what? Oh my, like, mm, what are you talking? Because we get along, we're, you know, we really didn't fight. There was a lot of respect between both of us still. And I really, truly had so much love for him. Like I wanted him to find someone like I had. That was mm-hmm, where my head mm-hmm. was. At that point, we couldn't do anything financially. So we just lived in the same house. I ended up moving into the guest room. And we were also advised by therapists not to tell our kids who were middle school and high school, not to talk to them yet. You know, give it six months at least, which mm-hmm. was good advice. So I just said, you know, my back's hurting or, you know, we just kind of made things up Mm -hmm. because we never fought. The kids really didn't see anything different. Mm, You know, they didn't see us hugging or anything like that, really, but they just didn't see anything different. But at this point, Scott knows how you feel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so are you now maintaining this relationship with Tony? Even though you're living in the same house, Mm -hmm. Scott knows that you're sort of mentally out. You've told him, like, I'm not in this with you anymore, but we're living in the same house. Mm -hmm. Now, at this point, are you maintaining this relationship with Tony? And what does that look like? Yes, but it was all virtual. And so he was on the other side of the country. I was out here out West. He and I talked constantly, which was not something I was used to Mm -hmm. in my life. I was not used to constantly checking in with someone and constantly texting, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. looking back now, of course, that's a big red flag as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But that's exactly what he wanted. So he was checking in on me constantly. I was checking on him. Scott was starting to date other people just to sort of move forward. You know, I think he, I think maybe around the four-month mark, Tony and I also had to travel together because not only was he helping me rebuild Mod Mom, but he was also working on building his line of furniture. Mm -hmm. And so we took those opportunities to travel to different cities, you know, whether it was a trade show or just meetings in general. So we did have time together. But most Mm -hmm. of our relationship was long distance. Okay. So how did the relationship unfold? So you had a lot of long distance, Mm -hmm. a lot of texting, Mm -hmm. every so often this travel for business. Mm -hmm. So what happened? So from the time I met him to the four-month mark, he was absolutely the perfect man. If I could have just written up who I thought I would be Mm -hmm. with in my life, 
it would be him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Until we were at a trade show and he says, Kirst, do you know you have a lot of eye contact with men? Hmm. Do you notice that? Like as we're walking down the halls, I mean, I'm just I'm just noticing it. I know I love that you're so gosh, I just love that you're so welcoming of people and so warm. And but I I do you know that about yourself? And I grew up in a household where we do look at, you know, I can take constructive criticism and I can go, huh. Maybe I do, and I have no idea. Maybe I am making googly eyes, and I have no idea I'm doing it. So I sort of just immediately went in and started looking at myself, but he wouldn't let it go. Mm. And any time we would talk about it and I would try and defend myself, it would turn into a two-hour fight. And I was not used to that. I was, like, my head was spinning around. Like, I don't even know why this is a thing, Like, I don't know why, A, you're feeling insecure about this, but B, I look people in the eye because that's how I was raised. That's what you do. It's a respect thing. And it would just, it would just melt into chaos. And I started Mm. to very quickly realize that the only way to fix it was to apologize. Mm -hmm. And so he was very effectively grooming me by making that, (laughs) that how Mm -hmm. we operated. And Mm -hmm. I just fell, you know, I fell right into that hole. In toxic relationships, jealousy is a constant feature. However, in Kirsten's story, instead of him rendering himself vulnerable and sharing his own insecurities, he instead pathologizes her and her eye contact. In other relationships, it may be criticisms about people who smile at other people or comments about how the person dresses. While jealousy is a universal human emotion, gaslighting and control are not normal and over time qualify as abuse. This is one example, Mm -hmm. him sort of, you're making eye contact. It's isolation. I mean, that's what that is, right? So he's making that comment. It would turn into chaos. You Mm -hmm. would apologize and probably, I'm guessing, stop making eye contact with anyone either. Yes. Was this the only example or were there other patterns of behavior that were starting to make you doubt the quality of the relationship with Tony? Yes, there were many, but I didn't want to believe it. Mm, mm -hmm, And I was mm -hmm. still, you know, I think I was still so addicted to what the the rush of what I had been Mm -hmm. feeling when I was around him and with him. He was constantly monitoring who was writing to me on Facebook. Oh, I saw this guy Mm. liked your picture. Who is he? Has he written to you privately? And that would always end up in a fight. Even if I said, oh, that's my friend from high school. He's funny. You know, he was like, oh, I didn't know you left Scott. And Man, that would be, yeah, you should have told me first, you know, kind of as a joke. Mm -hmm. This man I hadn't seen in 25 years. And then he would hang up on me. You know, it was a lot of hanging up. And then I'm noticing that I'm calling him back for more. Mm. And then I'm starting to shame myself. Oh, my God, who wants to be yelled at like this? Like, why am I calling him back? I don't even understand why I'm doing that. I would not put up with this, you know, at the lumber yard. I would not put up with this in any other part of my life because I was raised to be a very strong woman with feminist ideals. And I I don't take that. Mm-hmm. Yet I was taking it. Mm-hmm. And not only was I taking it, I was actually just rolling over and saying, mm-hmm. okay, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. So I felt like, oh my gosh, I'm just doing everything I can to then get back to that moment of the high. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yet for most of the time, I, you know, three quarters of the time, we were in that state where he was either starting to devalue me or it was just full on chaos. How many months was a relationship like this? I mean, how many months does a relationship last? I guess wow. is the bigger question. Three years. Or 
three years, years like this. Three years. That's a lot of stress. That's yeah. a lot. During those three years, were you always together? I mean, like no. you just kept putting... No. Oh, okay. So what happened? That was the other piece. You know, I we ended up breaking up, I think, around seven times, which, you know, I know mm. from writing <laughs> my book is an average that it takes for someone to get out of a, an abusive relationship. I just kept getting pulled back in and pulled back in. And I kept feeling, first of all, I kept shaming myself because I kept feeling like, I'm not strong enough. Why am I not strong enough? I don't understand this. I would never take this kind of abuse from anyone else. He even acted like he was going to run over me at one point. Domestic violence calls. Uh, cops were coming to our door asking, are you okay? Because the neighbors were worried that he was going to, you know, get physical with me. Mm -hmm. And I could even feel it was going that way, but I just kept giving him more leeway. And eventually... Mm -hmm. I couldn't take it anymore. I had to have that drug again, you know? I had to be in contact with him. Even, even in the hard times, I think I was getting that hit, you know, of, of dopamine and serotonin. And I didn't know that that was a thing. Mm -hmm. So I'm feeling out of control. I'm shaming myself. I'm also like, well, I made my bed. I'm going to have to lie in it. This is what I did. I did this to myself. Mm -hmm. So it was mm -hmm. really mm -hmm. all of that was coming down on me. The time period where we finally, you know, got to that point, because he was reeling me back in. It was after the seventh time. We're talking three years later. He was moved back east. He had been working out west for a little while. He was moved back east, which was a gift. And in that, you know, he was still doing all the same stuff that he would normally do and try and reel me back in. But at this point, you know, he's saying, I'm waiting for you. If only you'll grow up. Mm, he was a little okay. older than me. So mm -hmm. he's also saying, you know, I think this is your maturity level. Mm -hmm. I'm waiting for you, but it's your work to do. So again, I'm feeling very shamed. Mm -hmm. Out of nowhere one day, he's actually sending me pictures and saying, I'm waiting for you. I love you so much. I get a ding on my computer, and it's a woman from back east. And she said, I don't know if I should be reaching out to you or not, but I, I found you, basically, because I had been vocal about one of our our fights and our relationship. I finally got to that point. Mm -hmm. And so I had written about it on my blog. And she said, I found you. And I was with him last month. And I said, wait, um, with him? With him, with him. Yes, we were together. And he wooed me. And he used these songs. And he said these things. And it was all exactly the same. <laughs> couldn't believe it. And it was at that point that I really, truly felt like someone took the heroin needle out of my arm hmm. because I needed to have this in front of me. And so I, being you know someone who relies on empirical research and I'm very data-driven, I said, would you mind sharing with me you know, your match.com communication? And so she said, yeah, I will. Absolutely. So she sent screenshots and I couldn't believe it. What I was reading was was the stuff of a predator. Do you feel like he did to her exactly what he did to you? Yes. Yes, uh -huh. absolutely. It's an interesting question to me because the things he had done during the relationship, mm -hmm. the three years you were together, were unforgivable. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, mm -hmm. the name calling, mm -hmm. the isolation, on and on and on. Mm -hmm. And all perfectly good reasons to end a relationship. Right. What was it about this new person rolling up, mm -hmm. you know, met him, match.com, so on and so forth. As you, you put it, it's the heroin needle coming out of mm -hmm. the arm. Mm -hmm. What was it about this? Why was it this that finally opened your eyes and not the three years of really mm -hmm. what was abuse? Right. Absolutely. So I feel very strongly 
two things collided here. One, it was proof that Mm -hmm. what he was saying to me was not true. Because I think, you know, in the beginning, I was very much groomed to believe he was a good guy, to believe what he was saying. And he was really, really convincing. And my entire life, I pretty much just took people at face value. Mm -hmm. In a way, what Kirsten is talking about here is something that actually turns the gaslight off. She had enough red flags to literally paint the town red. But sometimes it takes something from the outside, a piece of information that tells us that our intuition was right, that there is not something wrong with us, that we did see something. Unfortunately, by the time something like this turns up, so much harm may have occurred. If you say you're going to do something, you do it. That is how I was raised. That is my Midwestern, you know, value. Mm-hmm. And that's what I extended to him as well. And mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. was different. This was a full-on, mm-hmm. you know, I am absolutely having an affair on this side. And I'm not just waiting for you, Kirsten. I actually have multiple women. The other piece of it, I believe, was at the time, and I know we've talked about how my story is, is a little even more complicated. At the time, you know, my intuitive gifts lend to working with cops. Mm -hmm. And I was actually working on a few cases that involved children who had been killed by predators and pedophiles. Mm -hmm. And so I would relay information that I would hear and see. So my intuition was very strong. And it was at that moment that I went, oh my God, this is what this, oh my God. Wait, okay, so I'm a childhood sexual abuse survivor. I'm working with cops on cases that involve kids who've been killed by predators, pedophiles. And now I've fallen in, I fell in love with a predator. Are you kidding mm-hmm. me? Mm-hmm. Like the full, it was the full circle realization that just almost knocked the wind out of me. It's a lot. There's that moment in these relationships. Mm-hmm. The statistic is that, you know, people will attempt to leave an abusive relationship seven times mm-hmm. on average mm-hmm. before they go. Some people it's 15, some people it's two, and some people get killed before they can actually right. finally leave. Mm-hmm. And so that, you know, that number seven has its power in the sense of what it speaks to is that cycle of being devalued, discarded, hoovered. Mm-hmm. And the hoovering is the sucking back. In the things that they know that they can say to you Mm -hmm. to get you back in. And that's going to be different for everyone. What kind of Mm -hmm. thing needs to be said? Does Mm -hmm. it play, for example, on your being a fixer? Some some cases Mm -hmm. it plays on empathy. In some cases it plays on guilt. It's a different hoovering game that's sucking back in based on every relationship. When you were with Tony, when mm-hmm. you were in that three-year relationship, did the two of you talk about a future, like mm-hmm. a marriage and a, mm-hmm. the whole thing together? You did. Yes, we did. And that was from day one. That was day okay. one. You know, he was saying, I want to come out to, you know, Flagstaff and we'll have a house that's big enough for all of our kids. And we were just plodding forward. Like, this is, we found each other. Thank goodness. Mm-hmm. We found each other mm-hmm. and we're soulmates and this is what we're going to do. And what I also thought was interesting is about a year and a half in, that would shift. And then I Mm -hmm. would be blamed for, well, why wouldn't you want to come to the East Coast? Because I Mm -hmm. said to him, like, my kids are, uh, my kids are, I I cannot leave the West. I cannot leave. Mm -hmm. I can travel, Mm -hmm. but I cannot leave. And the minute there was an opportunity on the business front 
to be closer to a manufacturer, then he used that and said to me, well, I can't believe I would do this for you, but you wouldn't do that for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a classic manipulation. And the only thing I can say, you know, my intuition was definitely working during the, you know, that time period, but it was working in a different way. Mm -hmm. And I think because my head couldn't hear and it, it couldn't wrap itself around what was happening to me and my heart certainly couldn't as well, my physical intuition was on fire. So mm -hmm. what I also mm -hmm. started to notice is that in that moment where he's trying to get me to come and live part-time across the country, I'm starting to have kick-in-the-gut feelings. I'm starting to get a vibration on my right hip that mm -hmm. said, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that that was, thank goodness for that, because innately I knew if I got over there, I was going to be isolated and I would have no money to get back. And we're mm -hmm. talking about mm -hmm. my kids. Mm -hmm. What you're describing, the confusion, the knowing, the not knowing, heart, head, body. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of people feel like, I, I, there was something wrong with me. And right. you know, I think that what we've learned now about what narcissistic abuse and antagonistic abuse looks like is there's actually nothing wrong with you. No. Because there are, like you said, you were giving the ratio of 75% of the time it was this chaos. Mm -hmm. That meant 25% of the time it was actually good. Yes. And when things are sometimes good and good in a way that's exactly the way we want them to be good, mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. becomes like a magic eraser. Yes. And even though that stuff doesn't get forgotten, you could buy another two weeks, one month, three months mm -hmm. out of that. And this is the paradox of anyone who's surviving these relationships. If the person was behaving like this 24-7 every day, most people would burn out on this. If they were right. behaving like this in front of other people, other people would take you aside and say, are you okay? That ability to be charming and charismatic in front of the right people, mm -hmm. in front of your friends. I mean, after all, he won over those mutual friends you Absolutely. had who thought he was terrific. And then give you what you need mm -hmm. at exactly the moment you need it mm -hmm. is enough to keep you in the game. And so really you're sort of living this relationship weeks, months at a time. Mm -hmm. But I mean, the fact of the matter is, Kirsten, some people, these weeks, months at a time can add up to 30, 40, 50 year relationships. Yes. So when we come back, I really want to talk about the end mm -hmm. of your relationship with Tony, how that all ended, how you got yourself out of it. Before I get to that, I'm going to ask you a question, Kirsten. I sure. know it's going to be difficult. And okay. so- Take a minute. If you don't want to answer it, I understand it. But it was something that struck me when I read the book. Mm -hmm. People listening to this podcast, they're going to hear, you were you were unfaithful. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. You were unfaithful. Mm -hmm. And a lot of folks who listen to this, uh, present company included, have been significantly betrayed in relationships. Mm -hmm. And there's often this sense of, well, Kirsten, you did the bad thing. Mm -hmm. You you were unfaithful. And we're seeing as the story is rolling out, it's complicated. But it's devastating to have that happen to you. you start, you've learned this now. We see in, in the relationship mm -hmm. with Tony, it happened to you. What did it feel like? I think that my bigger question to you then is, what did it feel like to share in something as public as a book mm -hmm. that you betrayed your husband? You know, it was a one-week affair, but people are going to say, you know, that's a matter of semantics. Whether someone cheats for a week, a day, or 20 years, you still betrayed right. the trust of someone who trusted you. What did it feel to take that part of your story and share mm -hmm. it, not just at a therapist's office or with a close friend, but with the entire world? Can you share that with us? Because like I know, I know some listeners are imagining I'm sort of looking a little sideways at this podcast saying, well, <laughs> she did do this. And, right. And they might even be taking a karmic stance on this. You yeah. know, I mean, I'm being, I'm being brutally honest. Mm -hmm. So what did it feel like to share this with the world? And also for Scott, what did it feel like? It was, uh, it was very scary, mm -hmm. to be honest with you. 
And I knew, you know, I, I know I will get backlash for it. I also know that I'm not alone. Mm-hmm. And what was interesting when I did come out, because the thing that I felt when I was finally kind of recovering myself again after I had gotten out and understood really who I had been with for three years, all I knew is that in order to move forward, I just had to completely come clean. I have to just air it all out there. Mm-hmm. And that was mm-hmm. something that was hard to do. I remember tearing up because I love Scott. I love our kids. I was not looking to get out of my marriage. When I met Mm -hmm. Tony, I knew that there were some things that were wrong with it. And it's just not in my nature. So I remember there were tears falling. When I actually published it, I published a blog post that was called, I had an affair. Mm -hmm. I was like, "I I just have to do this. Now, of course, Tony on his side is slandering me horribly in the industry. And so I thought, well, I have nothing to lose. (laughs) I need to do this. So I did. So many people came forward. So many people. And it wasn't, you know, just the women that came forward that had been in relationships with Tony all over the world. It was women who, and and men who've said, I had an affair. This is what I did too. And I'm so ashamed Mm -hmm. and I don't, you know, I'm never going to come out and talk about it, but thank you for talking about it. Uh 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 And then on Scott's end, you know, thank God he is, I mean, I just absolutely adore him. We've been back together since 2017, which is, Uh that's the best part of the book. Uh It's a love story. Uh I'm really lucky and that he is who he is. And, you know, I we look at those three years as, you know, obviously I was healing from the childhood wounds, right? So I, you know, I had a chance to stand up to abuse that I couldn't stand up to as a kid because Tony pretty much replicated my uncle. Like they're kind of the mm-hmm. same person. So he had an under Scott had an understanding of what was happening there. He was still hurt and he didn't want to go through it and he didn't want to see me go through it. Mm-hmm. But he took a different road. And instead of, you know, what we do in society most of the time is say, well, she's bad and he's good. And we had mm-hmm. a lot of friends do that. I lost a lot of friends. Instead of, wow, what happened in that first 18 years of that marriage, you know? Mm, wow. And looking at, well, when these types of things happen, unless you're dealing with a serial, mm-hmm. well, narcissist, basically, you know, somebody who's having multiple affairs, there's something going on in that marriage. Mm-hmm. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, that was the thing that he understood. So he took it and he internalized it and said, you know, during those three years, he started reading a lot of books. He started, you know, looking internally at, oh my gosh, okay, how can I be a better person? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How could I be a better husband? How can I be a better dad? Oh my gosh, my, you know, I, I've put so much on Kirsten and started mm-hmm. to realize that. He openly talks about how he finally realized he had like Peter Pan syndrome. So I was running around pleasing and fixing everything while he was just running around having fun, you know? Mm-hmm. And obviously very caring person, great dad, all of that. But he grew up and he admits that. And I think that's the key. You know, we both, we, mm-hmm. we had these conversations after we got back together and we would just lay there and he would tell me, oh yeah, I had this one date. It was crazy. And, you know, <laughs> like this, holy cow. And it's just so weird to be with other people after, you know, we've been together for so long. And then and then I would slowly reveal the depth of the abuse because I hid a lot of that from him too. You know, he mm-hmm. knew I was being abused, but he had no idea the depth of it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think in just bearing, both of us bearing our souls, we get we could come back together even stronger because mm-hmm. of it. Thank you for sharing that and mm-hmm. answering that because I know that that's a, it's a tough question and I really appreciate yeah, you sort absolutely. of giving context to that. We will be right back with this conversation with Kirsten. 
So Kirsten, it's three years mm-hmm. of a very toxic relationship and made, I'm sure, much harder by having to co-parent your children. I'd imagine by now you've obviously during the relationship you moved out yes. from Scott. So mm-hmm. you had your own place, but it's not it's not easy Mm-mm. to co-parent, even with a healthy, healthy co-parent, which is you sounds like you had in Scott. Yes. You're in this abusive, toxic relationship, breaking up, making up, long distance, all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Three years in, you find out that there have been other women and one in particular reaches out to you, shares with you what happened Mm -hmm. on Match.com. And that feels like the end to you, the end of the rush, as it were. Mm -hmm. What happens at that point three years in when you decide, yeah, I'm done? So at that point, you know, I felt like I was starting to get Kirsten back. And thankfully, Scott was there with me. Like, I've got you. I'll hold your hand. He wasn't pushing me. There was no expectation of us getting back together at that point. But he was there as a friend. Mm-hmm. And I had a lot of people that were surrounding me and folks who were really scared for me because they thought, mm-hmm. you know, I was going to die. And I, I would have died in that relationship, whether it be by his hand or my own. I had lost so much weight. I was smoking two packs of cigarettes just to deal with all of with all of the stress. My hair was falling out. I was having heart issues. I was a disaster. So after I finally was able to get out, he, of course, was trying to combat it. Tony was on his end. And he was lashing out because I finally put my foot down. I I felt so much shame from all of it. I felt like, God, I had it all together, you know? And then look what I did. So much shame to be in that situation. And what it was, what struck me and and why I advocate so strongly for abuse survivors now as well is that while the judge granted the restraining order, he also was fairly shaming. Hmm. What did he say? He said, why uh, why did you get into this? Hmm. And you do realize that this is not going to protect you. Right. And every, you know, his tone was condescending. Everything about him felt like he was saying, oh, stupid girl. Uh It was interesting to be in that place. And I knew I needed to do it alone. So I did it alone. That was really, it was really hard. And I also had one tiny moment, which I think, you know, I now look back at as trauma bonding, where I actually felt bad for Tony. I had a Uh moment, which then made me feel even more shame. Uh Yet it's so normal. I mean, you nailed it. That's exactly what it is. And the trauma bonding, Mm -hmm. there is this sense of guilt and responsibility for this person and pity. Mm -hmm. And for many survivors, when they finally get themselves over that wall and say, I'm out, you know, which is, you know, absolutely superhuman effort. Mm -hmm. Once they get out... That reaction of pity Mm -hmm. is so universal among survivors of these toxic relationships that I can't make enough emphasis on that. But it's interesting you got a restraining order, you know, and I want to come back to that. Okay. Because a lot of people who have been in these relationships can't get them. Right. Were the nature of his threats such that that it felt like it was a there was a potential threat to of harm mm-hmm. to property to that kind of thing. So that he was articulating like I'm going to I'm going to get you, I'm going to harm you, I'm going to come to this or that place where you're at. Yes. Yes. And mm-hmm. you know, I had mm-hmm. known that he had been violent before. Mm-hmm. I later found out he, he's a wall puncher, right? Mm-hmm. Like he mm-hmm. knows he knows just how much to push it. Yeah. He's a hothead. He is, he has road rage. Mm -hmm. And I was the only person thus far in his life that I could tell who stood up to him. Mm. And so I knew that I was at greater risk, most likely. It wouldn't be, you know, surprising at all if he were driving across the country all night long 
in, you know, showing up at my apartment. And what was interesting about that is after I get the restraining order, my husband and I, we actually lived in the same apartment complex at the time. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. we found out, and this is when we had already decided we were going to get back together and we were supporting each other. And so we went to the management of the apartment complex and we explained the situation. And the woman was just incredibly, incredibly supportive, like more, like to the point where I it was intuitively thinking she's been through this. And I said, well, okay, great. So we can we can move in together into the same apartment, which would be Scott's apartment for the time being, because I could technically get out of my lease because I had a restraining order, a protective order. Mm, so they allow yeah. that to happen for any of you listening out there. Please know that. So I ended up moving up to Scott's. But what she said to me right before we signed that paperwork is, I'm glad you're doing this. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do find this missing girlfriend and tell her story with the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one like my producer Anna oh my god my friend Dr. Mindy Shapiro hi it's Dr. Shapiro and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner and of course Gail's sister Elaine Katz having no closure it kills you join us as we try to solve a 35 year old cold case It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week, I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Take The Dress. Most people remember it as an optical illusion that went viral, asking everyone on the internet, is this dress blue and black or white and gold? But there's way more to this story than that. The dress went viral in early 2015, marking one of the last months that the internet could still be fun. It was just before Trump declared his candidacy for president and polarized an already polarized internet. It was just shy of people deciding what went viral instead of algorithms. And it was just shy of celebrities realizing that they should never, ever tweet. It's more than a character of the day. It's an entire moment in time bottled in a little, well, either blue and black or white and gold package. I'm not relitigating it again. You cannot make it. And that's just one story. We've got a million. So listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am like I am where it is. This isn't going to work. I I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. 
I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily to die for is available now listen for free on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts i was in an abusive relationship and my boyfriend he got into my apartment and i happened to be on the first floor just like she was Mm. and he got in somehow and hid under her bed Uh. and then attacked her in the middle of the night. And so she understood first person uh-huh. the type of risk that I had taken just even publicly standing up to him. So that was nice to have, you know, those sort of angels, right, that are around yeah. you that you don't even yeah. realize, like, wow, I can't believe that she was in that same position. Absolutely. Because, you know, what you're experiencing is a phenomenon that has been termed post-separation abuse, which is an mm-hmm. escalation in abuse mm-hmm. at the point that the relationship is called done and typically called done by the the person enduring the abuse. Mm-hmm. And, and then everything escalates and can actually be quite, quite dangerous at that point. What the judge that mm-hmm. shaming mm-hmm. is such a common thing that happens not just by judges and other people in positions of power, but even ordinary people or even mm-hmm. people who should know better, like therapists, mm-hmm. who will just take the stance of like, what were you thinking? Why did you get into this? Why did you put up with this? And yet, you know, it's sort of trauma 101 yeah. and to understand on why mm-hmm. somebody not only would get into this and stay in this, which is why it speaks to the whole need for education. But the other thing the judge said, shaming though it was, it was also sadly right, which is this is not going to protect you. Yeah, exactly. You know, Mm -hmm. I think that's the agony of restraining orders that in the majority of cases, they escalate the likelihood of violence. All it does is it, it creates the ability to get law enforcement involvement for things that usually wouldn't require a response, like somebody's come within 100 feet of you. Right. But the fact of right. the matter is, for many people, because a restraining mm-hmm. order is something that has to be formally served to someone, that agitates them, because these are people who don't like being told no. And you also brought up a couple of patterns. He was a wall puncher. He was mm-hmm. a hothead. He was a road rage. What I'm not hearing about is violence towards you. Like there was no violence. Mm-hmm. He was, you know, did not hit you. But wall puncher is actually, it's an interesting term. I haven't heard anyone say it, but obviously mm-hmm. I've known people punching walls. But that wall puncher, road rage, hothead 
kind of phenomenology. That right there is sort of a signature of these toxic relationships. And, and that, that wall punching and, and hot-headedness may be a foreshadowing of more, of more pronounced, pronounced violence, violence, which is not which a is chance, not a chance we, want people, we want people to take. But sadly, but sadly people find that, people they, can't find that they can't do until much they actually until they are physically harmed. I have often told people, watch how somebody drives. Yes. Watch how they behave on the road because that right there is giving you a whole ton of information. And if it happens early enough, that should really be your sign to get out. That because that really speaks to an entitlement and a lack of empathy. You you get the restraining order. You move back in with Scott. Mm -hmm. Did it end at that point? Did did his behavior end at that point? No. It didn't. He would reach out in different subtle ways. And even the police detective that I was working with in Flagstaff said, he's not going to stop just because you have this restraining order. He will find other ways. And so what I thought was interesting is that I hadn't planned or hadn't even thought through that he would have fake profiles on Facebook, which I should have. That seems like that's, you know, an easy thing to deduce, right? (laughs) That, That he would do this. But he was literally crafting fake profiles, one of a man and one of a woman, and I'm sure there are many more. And those people would reach out to me and they would say, you're really embarrassing yourself. I can't believe you're talking about this stuff publicly (sighs) and things like that. So, you know, initially you get the gut punch feeling and then you're like, what? Why, why, who is this? Who is this person? So then Detective Kirsten goes in and starts looking. Okay, where are they from? Oh, well, that's weird. They're ma- they're supposedly married, but one lives in New Jersey and the other lives in Florida. So all of those red flags were going off for me, finally. And I, I was understanding that, oh my gosh, he's violating the restraining order just by doing this. Correct, correct. But unfortunately, because it is Facebook, that's a really difficult thing to get them to hand over IP information. Yes, it and is. And they did not. So there was nothing mm-hmm. I could do on that end. But, you know, I think it's pretty common, and I'm sure you know with all your years of work like that, it, it kept going. Up until uh, a couple years ago, I, I know he was still shaming friends and, and different people that he would find out were supporting me. It sounds like that, and I will never, ever soft-pedal. These these threats and these mm-hmm. these messages that come in these online spaces, they're very triggering. Mm-hmm. They're very affecting. They're very upsetting. So to me, that's ongoing abuse. Yeah. So that went on, and has that now really abated and yes. slowed down? Okay, yes. so he's, he's likely moved on to a new target. Yes. I mean, that's really what ends up happening. They get new supply from a new target. Yes, and years they, ago, they, probably. They, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Okay, so then you and Scott had already started Mm -hmm. working towards getting back together because you've Mm -hmm. moved into his upstairs unit. Mm -hmm. So what happened at that point? That was a lot for everyone to witness. And so what happened to all of it, to your your marriage, to your furniture business, and above all else, to you? Well, you know what? What was interesting about those three years that I was in that abuse, no matter what I tried, even on the business side, it wasn't working. Nothing would grow. Mm-hmm. It was as if, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. the soil was just dried, cracked, you know, awful. I was not in a place where anything could grow. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things I noticed that as soon as I got out, I went immediately to see one therapist and another psychologist. I did a lot of inner child healing 
work. Mm-hmm. I remember, you know, when Scott and I got back together, he was so wonderful and he understood. He understood. And he obviously, like I mentioned before, he saw what it was that he wanted to work on on his end. We both had a very frank conversation and said, our marriage can't be what it was for the first 18 years. Mm-hmm. Like we were both codependent. You know, obviously he understood that a lot of what I had gone through had to do with this revelation of childhood sexual abuse. But he had healing to do too. So once we had that ground on which to stand, it was just easy and Mm -hmm, loving. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I didn't feel suffocated. I did still have triggers from the abuse, which I thought was interesting. I remember going out for dinner with Scott and we went to an Italian restaurant. And I don't think we had formally gotten back together at that point. We were just sort of, we were doing things together you know, Mm -hmm. caring for each other and supporting each other. So we went out for dinner and I sit down in the booth and I sat down so that I couldn't see the door. And I sat there and I I looked at Scott and I said, oh my God, I'm doing it. He said, what are you talking about? I said, I just realized, and you're not even, you're not him, obviously, but I am purposely, like I was groomed to not want to sit where I could see the door because multiple times, in the relationship with Tony, if we were at a restaurant and the door swung open and a man came in and I maybe the light hit my eye and I looked up to see, he would say, why aren't you paying attention to me? Are you, are you looking at him? Why are you looking yeah. at him? So it became another one of those things I did. Keep your head down. Turn your ringer off on your phone. If Scott texted too much, he was texting me too much and, and Tony would get mad if he was not texting texting enough, then Scott and I weren't good co-parents. Like, Uh I could not win on any level. Uh So those triggers, I found that it took about a year for those to subside. Uh Uh You know, it's funny you say that, is that I think that there's a stance that people take, especially after they've been through really a malignantly narcissistically abusive Uh relationship Uh like you'd been, is sort of that head down. You know, there's a defeat posture a person takes, and all those micro-adjustments Take the seat that doesn't look at the door. Keep your head down. Don't make eye contact. Mm -hmm. Even how people dress, go through the world, all of that, it changes people in many, many almost imperceptible ways. But Mm -hmm. then you notice it, and it hurts. Mm -hmm. You recognize that this isn't just as simple as getting out of the relationship, that many of these scars come out in our feelings and in Mm -hmm. our behaviors for a long time afterwards. So is the furniture business still going? It is. Yes, it is. It is. Okay. Yeah. You know, everything started to blossom, to be honest with you. It right. was really fascinating. A week, uh-huh. a week into me thinking, okay, now I'm gonna try and resurrect Mod Mom, a licensing partner emailed me and said, We would love to partner with you. I just noticed that things were starting to come together again mm-hmm. in ways that mm-hmm. they hadn't before. Kirsten, if I had a dollar for every time a survivor told me like, things didn't work, things didn't work, this relationship goes away, mm-hmm. whatever it might be, it's not even just an intimate relationship. It mm-hmm. could be a family relationship, workplace, narcissistic relationship. In your case, it was kind of both. It's both yeah. a workplace and intimate relationship. Then once I start lifting these sort of toxic blockages, mm-hmm. things just started to flow. And I do, mm-hmm. I do sometimes wonder if it's sort of this karmic, dharmic block where it's like, no, this is not, you know, it's not, it's not your time. We have to get you out of this situation. Right. And then right. that energy will flow. Cause I see this blockage for people all 
the time. Mm -hmm. And then they get out of it and they're sort of devastated by what they've just been through. But there's a clarity of vision that has come back. Before you got back with Scott, Mm because you kind of went right back in with Scott, did you feel like you had a chance to even heal or even begin to heal before you got back with Scott? Or yeah. did the healing happen while you were with Scott? How did all that that's a, That's out? a great question. I'm glad you brought that up. So I actually, I think there were probably four months or so that I made sure he understood, like, I just, I need to heal me right now. I can't even think about, like, what we're going to do here. I could tell that he wanted mm-hmm. to get back together, but he also knew that because of our past relationship and I felt suffocated that he was definitely trying to be careful about that. I felt like I definitely healed while I was by myself, but also while I was with Scott. I have always been such an independent person and felt like I could take care of myself, you know, Mm -hmm. and made things happen and just like, I got this. I got this. And it was the first time I remember when Scott and I did get back together, I just wanted to cuddle. And as a childhood sexual abuse survivor and, and probably many that are out there listening know, I'm not that... I'm not a cuddly person. Mm-hmm. Earlier on when, you know, the memories were coming back and I was with Scott, I was having panic attacks during sex and I was trying to kind of figure out, well, why am I having panic attacks? You know, why is this happening? So I have always been, I've always been wired to like, yay, hug, and then back off mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. of the childhood stuff. And all I wanted to do was cuddle. I mm-hmm, just mm-hmm. like needed that safety, that security. And he provided that. And he knew I needed mm-hmm. it too. Mm-hmm. So I feel like it was actually, you know, to answer your question, it was both. It was while I was alone. It was while I was doing a lot of intensive therapy work. And then it was also with him. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, I mean, again, it's like you said, I think in some ways you framed it well. You said that this is a love story yeah. and a convoluted, twisted, <laughs> difficult love story. But the strong love stories are often quite messy. So I wanted to ask this. Yes. Is, how's Scott doing? Is Scott okay? Because Scott yeah. went through something too. It was a different journey than yours. But, you know, a reminder that there are other sort of fellow travelers on these stories with us. How is he doing? He's great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He obviously went through a lot too. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I have tried to be very cognizant of that as well. And he's very open. Like the way that this works now in our relationship is we're very open. Whereas before, Mm -hmm. if he said, do you want to go do something? I had to be trained by my therapist Mm -hmm. to actually literally say to myself, do I want to go do that? Mm -hmm. Instead Mm -hmm. of just give the pat appeasing answer. So I worked on that side of things. And so I would speak up. And now he speaks up and he doesn't have triggers much anymore. But in the first year, because we got back together in 2017, I remember in the first year, if I would get a text on my phone and I looked at it, I could kind of see him bristle a little bit because yeah. he's having his own triggers from the time that we had together. So we both just try and be really open with each other and really supportive and understanding. And, you know, the most important thing to both of us is our family and mm-hmm. being able to come back together and to support the kids in their journey too. We've been very open with them and I have always been open with them, but it also required sitting there and letting them say, I can't believe you brought that guy into our life. Mom, I'm so angry at you. And I said, I know, honey, I am so sorry if I could do this over again, you please know that I, you know, mm-hmm. it would never be this way. I'm so glad you're holding space for your children's anger because that was something mm-hmm. that was going through my mind is your children must have been so angry because you disrupted their lives yeah. and brought a dangerous person into their lives. Mm-hmm. And I know that this is such a complicated space for survivors who may have actually many, many people. And in some it's stories different than yours where mm-hmm. they're they're 
their spouse was the narcissistic person and the shame and the self-blame and the guilt yeah. about having this child be stuck with the narcissistic oh, parent is something that will stick with them all their lives. But even in a situation like yours, where there may have been a relationship that the person went on to have after, mm-hmm. you know, for whatever reason, and to be able to hold space for your children's anger, which is actually going to play out in waves probably yes. for the rest of their lives. And yes. that's 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 not an easy thing, but mm-hmm. your role is to hold space for that anger. As we're coming to an end, where can people find you and what do you want people to take from your story? So people can find me at kirstenhathcock.com. That's probably the easiest or modmomfurniture.com. Either one. Again, thank you. Your, your story is, again, so compelling in so many ways. The toxic relationship, what the human heart can survive. So, you know, people can find you at your website. They can find your book, Little Voices. You can read the entire story there and, and they can really get understand all the, the nuances of which there are many in this thank, story. Thank you. I am so blessed to know you and I just want you to know that. Thank you, Kirsten. I really appreciate it. Here are my takeaways from my conversation with Kirsten. First, infatuation is fun. It's dopamine meets the fairy tale. The preoccupation, daydreaming, text messages, and believing you are in something special and in your own happiness cocoon. Lots of things block us from seeing red flags, but infatuation is a big one, and it's so challenging because it feels so good. I don't even know how to teach people on how to stay on top of red flags when they are infatuated. It's like teaching people how to do their homework during their birthday party. But it's crucial that all of us regularly check in with ourselves, no matter how happy we are. For my next takeaway, infidelity is complicated, and Kirsten was aware of what her behavior did to her husband. There are differences between narcissistic infidelity, where there is entitlement and blaming and little self-reflection, and infidelity that happens for a person who, for a range of reasons, drift away from their relationships. The world isn't so simple as all cheating is bad cheating, and many relationships can come back after what I can only term non-toxic cheating. But it does hurt the person who is betrayed nonetheless, and the relationship that emerges from the breach of trust may even be stronger than the one before, but it will never be the same. For my next takeaway, survivors are so often shamed in numerous situations. They are asked, why did you stay? Why did you get into this in the first place? What were you thinking? If stakeholders ranging from judges to therapists to cops could understand basic elements of trauma bonding and trauma, the why of these relationships would seem elementary. However, even the fear of being shamed by these systems can lead survivors to not seek help. Finding safe, non-shaming, non-judgmental spaces is critical to healing and finding your voice when you are in a toxic relationship. For my next takeaway, post-separation abuse is real and something we have discussed on this podcast before. In an antagonistic and toxic relationship, the period after a breakup is often the most dangerous. 
stalking, menacing, showing up places, and even overt threats are not unusual and are a manifestation of the control seen in these relationships. Working with therapists who understand domestic violence and intimate partner abuse, domestic violence programs, and other advocacy are essential at these times. Kirsten had some angels along the way, such as her apartment manager, but not all survivors will have that. Do not hesitate to seek out help and resources. Resources will also be available in the show notes. A big thank you to our executive producers, Jada Pinkett-Smith, Fallon Jethro, Ellen Rakuten, and Dr. Romani Devasala. And thank you to our producer, Matthew Jones, associate producer, Mara Della Rosa, and consultant, Kelly Ebeling. And finally, thank you to our editors and sound engineers, Devin Donahue and Calvin Bailiff. Psst, there's a shortcut to platinum status at Shell. To saving 10 cents per gallon on every fill every day. Just fill up six times with Shell V-Power Nitro Plus Premium Gasoline, and it's yours. Plus, you'll rejuvenate your engine. Get ready to level up performance, rewards, and savings. With continuous use in gasoline direct injection engine fuel injectors, Platinum Status is earned with 12 fill-ups over three months, 10-gallon minimum per fill-up at participating Shell locations. Terms apply. Visit fuelrewards.com status. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week, I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Take The Dress. Most people remember it as an optical illusion that went viral, asking everyone on the planet, is this dress blue and black or white and gold? Turns out, that story was way bigger than just an optical illusion. It's a cautionary tale about the decline of clickbait sites, the rise of algorithms and internet polarization, and the end of fun on the internet. Seriously, and that's just one story. We're giving every character their 16th minute. So listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.